earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you out driving? Are you listening at home or on your mobile device? Are you catching the podcast? Well, friends, today will be part six and the conclusion to our series, A Look at Our Prayer Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. Our final installment is Psalms, the Ultimate Guide to Worship. Remember, our take on the Psalms is not a study of the Psalms per se, but rather a searchlight into our prayer life, letting the Psalms be our instruction manual. And I must say, friends, the Psalms offer an incredible and unique look at worship. I propose to you that worship and prayer together act like two sides of the same coin. I can almost say with 100% certainty that there have been times when you were praying that you were led to worship the Lord, right? And times when you were worshiping the Lord, you were then led to pray. They are so complementary and so naturally intertwined. I'll bet you've listened to worship music in your car, and especially on the way to church, right? Well, friends, a typical American family was driving home from church one Sunday. Dad began by fussing about the sermon being too long and somewhat dry. Mom chimed in, saying, The pianist played too loud during the second hymn. Their older daughter, who is now a music major in college, put her two cents in, saying, The soloist was off-key during her solo. Then Grandma, who joined them that Sunday, complained she couldn't hear very well since they were sitting toward the back. Then as they pulled into the driveway, their young son, who had been listening intently to everyone's comments, whined about the woman who sat in front of him with the big hat and blocked his vision. But then he paused and said, Hey, Dad, you got to admit, it was still a pretty good show for a dime, huh? Ouch! Friends, how many of us are daring enough to admit that all too often attending a church service is a lot like watching a show? The better the entertainment, the more we enjoy coming. The less we like what we see and hear, the more we grumble and complain. How many times have we left a church service and thought to ourselves, a good time was had by all? Instead of thinking, have I heard from God today? Yet we still tend to admit, don't we, that the price of admission is still pretty hard to beat. Compared to what the general public is willing to pay for live theater or a professional sporting event, it's still a pretty good show for a dime, right? Well, friends, I believe it's fitting to conclude our series with this final installment, Psalms, the Ultimate Guide to Worship. So what exactly is worship? How would we define it if we had to? 
Pastor Ray Pritchard in his book Green Pastures, Quiet Waters, Refreshing Moments from the Psalms, remarks, It has been said that we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Another ouch! After that, Pritchard adds a very convicting observation. In many ways, this explains the problem with contemporary Christianity. We worship something, but not the right thing. In all of life, nothing is as important as learning how to worship. When we learn how to worship, whole new vistas open before our eyes. Until that happens, our days will be filled with mere religious activity. We will come to church on Sunday, we'll give money, and we may be very active, but we'll miss the one thing for which we were created. Friends, why have we been created? In my opinion, no document spells out the answer better than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It presents a question, then provides the answer. What is the chief end of man? In other words, mankind. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, you might say that those words were written by people. Why should I believe their words? And you know what? You'd be right, providing you could conclusively demonstrate that their words do not capture the essence of what the scriptures declare. So, how about we put those words to the test? Let's take a random sampling of scriptures, and in particular the Psalms, and see just how well those human words stand up, all right? Remember, these psalms should portray glorifying God or enjoying God in one way or another. Psalm 34, 1 through 3. I will extol or bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 33, 1 and 2, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to him on a ten-stringed lyre. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 96, 7 and 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Psalm fifty-one, fourteen. Now here in the midst of King David's confession for grievous sins committed, he prays, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Psalm ninety fourteen. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Now, friends, let's briefly remind ourselves what biblical joy or biblical gladness really is. 
It is not being exempt from trials, troubles, hardships, disappointments, or tragedies. Rather, in the midst of life's circumstances, good or ill, it represents a condition of our soul, a disposition, if you will, that permeates our entire being, a deep-seated sense of stability and contentment because we are one with God, in union with Him. It is not to be equated with mere human happiness. It's no wonder then and no surprise that the Apostle Paul says these very words in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. A more modern translation says, So, brothers and sisters, since God has shown us great mercy, I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him. Your offering must be for only God and pleasing to him, which is the spiritual way for you to worship. Another translation's last phrase says, This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Yet another has here your spiritual service of worship. The key, I believe, friends, is that the scriptures are trying to show us and tell us that our life of service is, in actuality, a life of worship. And what is worship? In essence, it's glorifying God. Now, friends, our English word worship has an interesting history. It is derived from the Old English or Anglo-Saxon word worthship. Worthship carried the idea of worthiness, dignity, or merit, recognition accorded or due someone. In its religious context, it expressed reverent devotion. Service or honor to God, whether individually or publicly. Church buildings came to be understood as houses of worship. Perhaps we should bring back that mentality, huh? You see, friends, I think we've got it all backwards. How often do we rate a church by how much it meets our needs, our expectations? I've even seen these words on a church marquee. It's all about you. For people like you, the church that serves you. It makes me sick to my stomach. It reminds me of the latest casino TV commercial that closes with, You do you. Next time you visit a church, notice how you're greeted at the door. Does the greeter say, Welcome, we're glad you came to worship with us. Or does he say, welcome, we're so glad you came. How can we serve you or your family? Here's what we have to offer you. You see, subconsciously they're communicating, it's all about you. But it's not. It's all about God. Well-known Bible teacher Warren Wearsby defines worship this way. Worship is the believer's adoring response of all that he or she is, mind, emotions, will, and body, to all that God is and says and does. 
From the early history of the Israelites, we see that worship was not confined to the public arena or congregational setting. The oldest form of worship in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, was expressed within the family unit. Before Israel became a people as we know them, worship was already built into the fabric of family life. We observe this in the life of Abram, who became Abraham, in Genesis 12, 1-8, and Genesis 13, 14-18. Chapter 12 is God's call on Abram, and that God planned to make a great nation out of him, and that he will be a blessing. Then in verse 8 we read, Abram went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent. There he built an altar to the Lord, and called on the name of the Lord. Then in chapter 13, verse 18, we find God telling Abram to walk through the length and breadth of the land, and that he will give it to him. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. This understanding is heightened later on in Genesis 24, where we find Abraham's servant praying and seeking God on Abraham's behalf for God to lead his son to a wife, not from the Canaanites. The servant prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. This is interesting, isn't it? Abraham's servant had obviously been exposed to or accustomed to family prayer and worship. Why is this so significant? Because we modern Christ followers, we contemporary Christians, tend to equate worship with its sole expression in church services or congregational settings. But even when Israel became a nation... After the exodus and national forms of worship were instituted, the family unit continued to play an important role in worship. With the centralizing of sacrifices and prayers in the tabernacle and later the permanent temples, national worship did not replace some occasions for prayer and praise in the family or clan units. Friends, there's no reason to suppose that family prayer and praise became obsolete. A strong indication of this may be found in the account of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 28, where the practice of singing hymns, in other words, psalms, was evidently still in use in the home by Jesus' time. Interestingly, even after the tabernacle was constructed as a worship center, it was still movable and transportable. I like to refer to it as a mash unit. I believe God intended to convey to Israel that the living God is not to be tied to a permanent structure. Notice Stephen's remark in Acts seven forty four through 50 Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It remained in the land until the time of David, who asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. 
You know, friends, I really wish there was a way to reconstruct an ancient Israelite worship service. But unfortunately, scripture nowhere provides an order of worship for us. But we do have some clues to the occasions that Israelites express their musical passions in worship. This may be seen in the great festivals, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, etc., these were occasions of great joy, thanksgiving, and remembering God's mighty acts. In these festivals we see both a declarative and the confessional aspects of worship. Passover was the festival of liberation, celebrating deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. Pentecost was the festival of provision, celebrating the wheat harvest in the land of Israel. For Messianic believers, Pentecost commemorated the scent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and other Christ followers while they were in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Tabernacles was the festival of guidance, celebrating God's guidance of the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness. And let's not forget the weekly celebration called Sabbath, which was not centralized in the sanctuary, but rather took place in the context of the local family or clan units. Interestingly, the Sabbath was originally instituted as a day of rest rather than a day of worship, yet worship became intertwined as the Sabbath not only became a memorial to creation, as in Exodus 20, but also became a memorial to the deliverance from Egypt. Egypt, as in Deuteronomy 5. Both testaments, old and new, make it absolutely clear that there is only one object of our worship, God. Remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? His last response to Satan's lure was, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4.10. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for worship includes both worship and service. Both are inseparably linked. In Colossians 3.16 we read, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, at the heart of worship lies both a proactive and reactive response to God's disclosure of himself. Perhaps a working definition of worship might be this. Worship is the response triggered by and inspired by a revelation from, encounter with, or the presence of the Lord. Interestingly, Scripture records responses from humans, angels, creatures, and nature itself. Even the book of Revelation, often pigeonholed into being viewed solely as a book of end times prophecies, is actually a book of worship. I propose, friends, that a more careful reading of Revelation reveals picturesque worship scenes in the heavenlies with the redeemed, angels, and beings referred to as the four living creatures. Worship is the fulcrum between Christ followers and Satan followers. 
Worship is interwoven from Genesis to Revelation as a constant theme. And here again, we must not overlook the Psalms. They are such a vital contribution to individual and corporate worship. The Psalms have been viewed as the prayer book of the Bible, and it was the hymn book of the early church. Martin Luther remarked that Psalms was the book of all saints, in other words, all Christians. The Psalms portray the people of God responding to God's presence and God's absence in the midst of their spiritual journey. Friends, back in our New Jersey days when I was worship leader, I drove one of our worship team members to church one Sunday. She was quiet in the car and then shared with me that she was going through a real wilderness experience with God and hadn't heard him speak to her for a while. Then she told me that recently she heard God say to her, Jerry, can you trust me with my silence? I was blown away by that. Well, Israel's worship and the Psalms express a wide range of human emotions, if you haven't discovered that yet, and a wide range of life experiences and events. Workers bringing in the harvest sang vintage songs, Isaiah 16.10, Jeremiah 48.38. The simple digging of a well brought out a song or a chant, Numbers 21.17 and 18. A simple farewell prompted a song, Genesis 31.27. A homecoming was accompanied by timbrels and dance, Judges 11.34 and Luke 15.25. Victories in battle prompted many songs. A key one is Exodus 15. Women even held a special place in the worship structure of Israel. Among Israel's earliest musicians were Miriam and Deborah. Women supplied the music and dancing for a victorious battle, Judges 11.34. Women's voices spread David's reputation for valor, 1 Samuel 18.7. So friends, if you take anything with you today from this lesson, please take this. Worship is to be the central act of life. Please let's get out of our minds that worship only or primarily happens at 10.30 on Sundays. Sunday morning worship is not supposed to function like a spiritual B12 shot. We're not supposed to come on Sundays for our weekly worship fix that holds us over to next Sunday. If we do, we're living for the wrong thing. I'm sorry, friends, but I just have to tell you that I can't stand a phrase in a contemporary Christian song where it says, Get your worship on, as if there are times we don't have our worship on. Let's please not forget Romans 12, 1 and 2. Worship is our spiritual or reasonable service to the Lord. All the time. Our praises should be a reflex to the prior actions of God, which move us to seek his face. Seek his face continually, as the psalmist cried out in Psalm 27, 8. The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, points us to worship 
In verses 8 and 9 we read, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard these things, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it! I am a fellow servant with your brothers the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God! Friends, the definitions of worship I've shared with you today Interestingly enough, don't mention a pipe organ or a contemporary praise band. They don't say anything about drums or a robed choir, nor do they touch on the burning and troublesome issues in our generation of choruses versus hymns. We get hung up on these outward manifestations when the Bible is telling us that worship involves our response of all that we are to all that God has revealed himself to be. Now, don't get me wrong, Sunday services have their place, but if the only time we worship is Sunday, we've missed what the Bible has to say about worship. When the living God himself grips our soul, every day will become Sunday, and worship will become as natural as breathing. Amen? Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. I hope our journey through the Psalms has helped you to develop a Psalms-driven prayer life, realizing prayer can lead us to worship, and worship can lead us to pray. Let's continue deepening our prayer lives, especially now. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me and share your feedback. Please also consider joining the support team. I'll supply the details. Thanks to you whose support is keeping this program on the air. One listener wrote and said, Great message on prayer. So needed now more than ever. Thanks for sharing. Please also remember that the podcasts are available at faithtalk1360.com. Just search for local program podcasts. Forward the site to those you think will be blessed and fed from these teachings. Thanks for listening today, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 